I appreciate so much Andrew and Joseph preaching as we were in Honduras and we were greatly ministered to more than we ministered as, as it is every time we live on mission for God. But here's the question today. What drives our curiosity over spiritual gifts? Probably one of the greatest conversations, topics that I've had has been trying to help people answer the question, what's my gift? And how do I use it? And, you know, what about these miraculous gifts? How would I use it or should I use it or is it a sin to use it? Should we even ask for it? And then we get in fights and watch these little YouTube clips of arrogant people. And sometimes you turn on TV and you see things and they're going, I don't know whatever that is, but I want to stay away from that. What drives our curiosity? You see, Paul is not as concerned about spiritual gift as he is with answering the question, what is your motivation for asking the question to start with? How much do you love the church, the local church? This is preeminent. What is the local church for? Is it really about love of me? Is it about me building or is it about bodybuilding? Is it about kingdom building driven by the love for the lost? Listen, is that why we're partnering with the city and events? Because if it is not, we're doing the wrong thing. We must have a love for God's church and a love for God's people. The context is the First Corinthians church is having trouble with this. And so when you look at verse 14, if you've got a little heading on your Bible, you see it says prophecies and tongues. That's what mine says. Some may have different. The context is both tongues and prophecy was being used greatly and oftentimes being used wrongly. Tongues were being part of worship service and no one was interpreting, no one understood it. Those that were exercising their gift of prophecy were long-winded and sometimes people were speaking at the same time, so worship had become chaotic. And if you've been around a block a time or two, you've probably been to a church service or two where you didn't know whether to duck, run, drop, drop and roll, or what they used to tell you, if you got on fire, you stop, drop and roll. I had a couple times I didn't know whether I needed to stop, I didn't know whether I needed to drop, I didn't know whether I needed to run. This was what was going on, it needed to be corrected. He's not correcting it through fear. So this is our main idea today. When the body of Christ gathers for worship, we should pursue love as we desire spiritual gifts that do two things. It build up the church, the body of Christ, and reflects the God we worship. We build up and we reflect. So let's look at the first. We gather together to build up the church. You see, this is the point. I just want you to peruse with me a few verses. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 5. You see, just if, you don't, if you get this first section, if you've got your little pamphlet on the, on the front page, a building is the point, not spiritual gifts. If you don't get anything, get this one section. If you've got a 5-10 minute attention span, lock it on this one. Building up is the point, not spiritual gifts. Look with me at verses 3. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Three very important words to understand in light of spiritual gifts. 
The one who speaks in tongues builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Verse 5. Now I want you to all speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Verse 12. So with yourself, since you eagerly Since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 17. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, let each one of you have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for what? Building up. Now, if you've been coming to Micah's class, you've, you've learned that when you read the text of Scripture, you look for words that repeat. And when you find a bunch of repeated words, you've pretty much found the point of the text. The point of this text is that we should desire gifts, not for ourselves, but for the building up of the body of Christ. The edification of the church is Paul's concern that we are either constructive in the way we use our gifts or we can be destructive in the way we use our gifts. This is his concern, not the gifts themselves. In a sense, if we understood last last week's message, these things begin to take care of themselves as we love and are more concerned about other people than we are ourselves. We know this is how discipleship works. We know this is how marriage works. The more you care for your spouse, the more you yourself are built up. He's concerned with three things. Look at verse 3. That our building up consoles. You see that? They're upbuilding their encouragement and their consolation. That word consolation means, means to bring relief in the midst of affliction. It's a very practical way to upbuild. People in the body are being afflicted and we come to their rescue. We help them, we rescue them, we bring them relief, whatever that relief looks like. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. If you're a growth group leader, this is probably a a text we need to read again in growth group. I know no better verse here this morning to summarize and to answer the question, is this your motivation for what kind of the way to use your gifts? Is this what you're looking for Within the body of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. Paul says to the local church in Thessalonica. And we urge you brothers. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. This is what you're looking for. This is how you're using either your teaching gifts or your serving gifts. You're looking for the weak those that are easily straying and you're, you're helping them. You're coming along the side of them. You're looking for those that just can't make it one more day. Don't know how I'm going to make it one more week. We admonish those that are at the brink of walking away or falling or stumbling. We console them. We encourage them. Do you see that in verse 3? This is active support. There's no idleness in encouragement. This is, this is a calling to bring aid to someone else, to walk alongside of them, to be with them. Look down at verse 31. He says, For 
you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. You begin to see the things we, we, we fixate on spiritual gifts and we become the Corinthian church rather than understanding the point of the text, which is we need to focus on the fact that there are people in our body and we need to help them. We need to build them up. Instruction simply means to teach and inform. It is a verbal action. Upbuilding is the point. So now let's look at verse 1. It says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So verse 1 simply reminds us of the last section, right? First chapter 13. Love is our motivating center. Remember what Joseph said last week. If we don't have love, our spiritual gifts are useless. They just sound like a banging. Speaking truth without love just sounds like cockiness. Trying to help people without love just seems like we're trying to patronize them. This is agape. The unconditional setting of our affections on one another. I love this. Josh McDowell says this. Love is first of all an action. An unconditional commitment. A promise that's never broken. If we do not have that as our understanding of love, we have the world's understanding of love. I wonder, love is first of all an action, an unconditional commitment, a promise that is never to be broken. I challenge you to think about that in the context of the local church. Not your boyfriend, not your spouse first today. Think about the local church. We're supposed to pursue it. This is present active imperative. This is a command that is ongoing in our life. And so is desiring spiritual gifts. You see that? We should earnestly desire. That's one word in the Greek. Earnestly desire. To set one's heart on. Connects really well intentionally so with love. We set our intentions intentionally on. This is also present active imperative. It's a command that we pursue spiritual gifts. It is a command that we pursue love. We desire it. This desire is attached. We know for that word. It's passion is attached to desire. Our interest, our enthusiasm, our devotion. Do you remember when you first fell in love? That desire didn't have to drum up the passion or the interest or the affections or the devotion. We found the time. How can you desire what you cannot understand? I've got in your pamphlet some definitions and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of them. I can tell you those came out of Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine book that we teach on Wednesday. And I would challenge you, brothers and sisters, that you can't go as deep as I want to go in the 40 minutes we have together. That's why we have Wednesday night equipped. But the couple of issues that he's bringing up centered around both prophecy and tongues. So let me just simply read to you how Grudem defines prophecy as simply telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. 
quoting again, the gift of prophecy is basically the explanation of the present in light of the revelation of God. Now you have to hold, remember the principles that are on the back of your handout. We looked at those in chapter 12. The canon of Scripture is closed. We do not add to the revelation that God has given us. But brothers and sisters, we are required, especially as pastors and teachers, to apply truth into the lives of people. Truth is applied. The Bible teaches clearly that preaching, teaching, and prophecy are distinct. And whether or not you believe that that has ceased or that is ongoing, you cannot have a preacher unless he is willing to utter prophetically that which God tells him to speak into the application of the lives of the people that we are teaching. This is what is being done sometimes well in the church and sometimes not well. And quite honestly, we have a hard time even thinking about it because every time we turn on the TV, we see someone blaspheming the Holy Spirit and using prophecy as a means to pad their own pockets. I just saw it yesterday that the Attorney General warned Jim Baker. Remember Jim Baker? Thought he was gone. He's still around. He's got his own revelation and end times ministry now. You know what he was selling? A cure for the coronavirus. Nothing but, enough, but a vitamin supplement or something. But because he has all these people bowing down to the offer of himself, he builds people. It's nothing more than spiritualized manipulation. This is, this is not what the Bible describes as prophecy. It's exactly what he says that we should Spit out if we hear it. How about tongues and interpretations? Here's just a couple simple definitions. Tongues, speaking in tongues is prayer and praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker, whereas interpretation is simply reporting to the church the general meaning of something spoken in tongues. Chapter 12, verse 30, he asks a rhetorical question. It says, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all... Speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer to the question is no. God gives these abilities to some and not the others. It is no evidence that you have been filled or are saved. It is a gift. So in this context, tongues is understood as a simply a special form of prayer. The problem is not that they were doing it. The problem was they were speaking in an, in an unknown tongue and no one understood it. point here. It's not that we get in an argument about these gifts. The point is that all the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives of His own prerogative is used out of a motivation of love to build up His church. If they're not, be quiet. That's what He's telling the people. Be quiet if you don't love people. Because to teach people you don't love simply brings you under judgment. Love them. Seek to build up the church. Pursue gifts with that point. You see his point here. Look at verse 6 to 19. Is that in order to build up the church. What, what we say must be intelligible. That's what he's. So upbuilding through intelligible speech. Things that we can understand. Look at verse 9. So with yourselves. 
If, we're, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what he said? Now, pause a minute. That's not hard to understand, is it? If something is spoken and nobody knows the language that it is, you're basically just talking into the air. That's what he's saying. For there are doubtless, in verse 10, for there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to, to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in what? Building up the church. That's the point. It's, it is an intelligible speech. And so I am taking the view just to be clear that the word tongue here, because this is simply the meaning of the word, the word tongue here is glossa, and it's referring to human language, not some kind of ecstatic, frenzying utterance that we experience. That's not what he's describing here. No matter what you agree, that's simply not what the word means. It is human language. This reflects what's going on in the church as people were speaking with an uninterpreted language an unintelligible speech, and no one was interpreting it. And so no one understood what was being said. He's sitting there going, how in the world can the church be built up and encouraged when no one understands what you're saying? That's his point. In other words, in Paul's view and his understanding here in chapter 14, prophecy and interpreted tongues exercise the same point because when something is intelligible within the body of Christ, the church can be encouraged. The faint-hearted strengthen the saints equipped. We can't lose the point. Whatever God gives us in our giftedness, we should excel. We should pursue it in order that people would be built up. Not ourselves. Look at verse 16. I love this. This is where you are required to give me an amen, right? Look at the, the Bible's going to teach it to you right now. This is why we need to have intelligible speech. Maybe sometimes you don't amen me because I can't be understood. Maybe that's the problem, I don't know. Look at what it says. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For what you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. In other words, what an amen is doing is you're signing your name what is being said. When you amen a song, you're signing your name that you agree with the message of that music. That's why pastors become discouraged when nobody signs their name on the truth he's just proclaimed. Right? Amen. We can get this thing going here. This is what the Bible says. This is what he's saying. Intelligible, Jolang, intelligible. Say that three times. Intelligible, intelligible, intelligible. Intelligible. You've got to understand it. Because you want the body of Christ to sign their name on the truth of God's Word and the application of it into their life. And if you're not, if they can't, then it might be because that's really about you anyway not about the body of Christ. You see, it's not simply about you and me this morning gathering together to, to, so that we might worship our God. 
Worship, corporate worship, that's what we're talking about today. Not simply your private worship. Your corporate worship is fundamentally participatory. Right? In other words, we're not simply orienting ourselves to God. We are also gathered today to build each other up. That's why you... That's part of your motivation for why it's here. And quite honestly, that is missing for why most people don't feel the need to gather. They fundamentally make worship about themselves. When it's it's about the body of Christ. See, Paul's trying to get to an issue here. This is why it's important to not understand the issue. People are abusing. People are... Think about this. (laughs) This is applicable. They are consumed with the miraculous gifts. They're obsessing over it. Apparently, they are very gifted people. And they really like to express their giftedness and make sure everybody can see. Ever been in a church? Things seem rather calm, and all of a sudden, something happens in the back of the church. You don't know quite what, that, what, just, what just happened. Maybe it, was a, maybe it was a hoop. Maybe it was a holler. You ever had somebody start running? You ever been to one of those churches? It's, it's quite an experience, you know. And uh, people can get obsessed with an individual experience with God and they bring it into corporate worship and what you have is what's going on in the Corinthian church. If you want to experience it, simply turn on TBN and give it about five minutes. It'll happen. What are you experiencing there? The right use of the gifts? No. What you're experiencing is abuse and blasphemy. That's what you're experiencing. It is damnable heresy to claim to do something in the name of the Holy Spirit that He has nothing to do with. The Holy Spirit does not fleece people, does not manipulate people, and does not spiritually derail people. It's not what we're, this is the, the abuse, the very thing that Paul is trying to deal with in the church is to say, make sure that you love the body in Christ and make sure that you are committed to use your gifts for the, their good, not your own. It's scary to some degree that we can use our gifts in an unintelligible way. But that's what's happening in the church and that's what could happen to us. I love John Piper. He oftentimes has a way with words. Listen to what he says. Unintelligible good news is not even news, let alone good. Unintelligible good news is not even news, let alone good. In other words, you can't even understand it, much less to be called it good news. Look with me at verse 19. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Corporate worship is when we gather together and with one mind and one voice worship our God together. And when we do, we are built up. Upbuilding should be with understandable, intelligible language. And listen, look at verse 20 to 25. It should also be for the gospel's sake. There's a, there's a gospel at stake in our corporate worship. Brothers, do not Be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written by the people. Now this, hold on, this is is the confusing part of the message in Paul's writing. This is some of the things that Paul writes, you're sitting there going, Paul, what are you trying to say? I don't know, you read commentaries and half of them are confused about it too. So 
Hang with me. I think this will make sense in a minute. Verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to the people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign is not as a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So what is he saying? Well, let me give you the illustration. He's quoting out of Isaiah 28. And here's, here's what, and we under, we'll understand this when we think about Old Testament. So what happens? The prophets come into the people of God, and they proclaim the truth. Repent of your idolatry, or judgment's coming. What did they do to the prophets? They ignored them. They killed them. They rejected them. Here's what he's saying. What happens when you reject the Word of God? is you will wake up with the Assyrians on top of your head speaking a language you don't understand. And that is a negative judgment. It is a negative sign that because you've rejected the prophecy of God, now you have these Babylonians or these Assyrians speaking to you, taking you to a place you do not go, to a language you do not understand. This is the danger of allowing uninterpreted tongues in the body of Christ that brings confusion because in the Old Testament, that was a sign of judgment. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they, this is what it says, will they not say that you're out of your mind? I've had those experiences as a Christian. I'm sitting there going, I think somebody's crazy in here. <laughs> I don't, I, don't, I don't know, you know. Is it safe to come out today, you know? That's what he's saying, you see. Why is he saying that? Because there's a gospel at stake. This is why I want to make sure we understand the principles. God has given us a word to speak. You don't need my opinion. You need my, the truth of God's word, but you must have that truth applied into your life. The gospel is at stake, and so our language must be understandable. Lest your lost co-worker come to church here, and all it sounds like is a bunch of uncontrollable babble. That's not the purpose. As you see here, verse 24, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever and outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of the heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, there's the point. Do you see it? We want the gospel to be clear so that the believers are uplifted and so those unbelievers are convicted, repent, and worship their God. And we should put nothing in the way of that. When the body of Christ gathers for worship, we should pursue love by desiring spiritual gifts that not only upbuild, but look at the next, our last point, that reflects the God we worship. We are God reflectors in our life. Yes, we are. <laughs> We're reflecting Christ however we are living, and we reflect Him in how we gather together. And so, verses 26 to 33, here's what He's saying. God is a God of order, not chaos. So your worship services should reflect that. Verse 26. What then, brothers? 
When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for what? A building. Notice what he does here now. If any speaks in a tongue, let, him, let there be only two or at the most three in each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let them be, keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And so what he's not doing here is, cre- is creating, I don't know, you probably don't even know that we do this, and maybe you do. We have an order of worship. There it is. We plan. Me and Micah meet every week, and we look at what the, how the, the words of the core issue of the text and how the worship, how our music flows. And here's what he's not doing. He's not giving us some fixed order of worship. That's not his point. If anything, there's an order of freedom here. Here's what he's concerned about. He's very concerned that when the Corinthian church is gathering, let's say there was a hundred people gathered probably worshiping in a house church, so there was probably more like 50 or 60. But let's say 100, easy number. Here's what he's saying. Here's what shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't be having 100 individual worship services in there. Each one having their own individual experience with God. You see, that is chaos. There is an order of worship because corporately we have gathered together to worship Him together. It's not about our, our personal experiences. It's about our collective worship of God. Listen to this. Pursuing, pursuing freedom for the sake of freedom is chaotic, bringing anarchy. Ordering simply for the sake of order is despotic, bringing tyranny. Order for the sake of freedom is liberating, bringing liberty. Pursuing freedom for the sake of freedom is chaotic. Order simply for the sake of order is despotic. And order for the sake of freedom is liberty. That's what he's concerned with. He is saying, he's teaching them a theological principle that because God is both creative and redemptive and orderly, so should our worship corporately. We should simply reflect the God for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. The point is that the body of Christ is lifted up and the gospel is made clear. He's making this argument to the the prophets that were long-winded and even speaking over the top of each other. You can just imagine the worship service with people having all these words they wanted to say and the people speaking in tongues might be doing it all at the same time. He's sitting there going... Would God inspire a prophet to bring chaos to corporate worship? He's saying, no, that's outside of God's nature and character. God brings order and peace. And here's what else he's saying. Look at the rest of it, verses 29 to 33. He said, orderly worship should express self-control and accountability. Look at verse 29. Let two or three of the prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. So here's what he's saying. We're accountable. 
when someone speaks. You just don't sit there going, whoop, that's right. Sit there going, no, no, we're supposed to weigh it. We're supposed to examine it. God's word and God's truth examined. You ever had anybody to come up and tell you God told them to tell you something that apparently God didn't tell them to tell you? <laughs> you get up and say, what was that about? I don't know. Guess they ain't asking for this supper or something, but that, why, why did we, did we just reject it because they might have hurt our feelings? No, they could be telling you the truth. Did you weigh it with, in line with God's word and God's character? That's what we're supposed to be doing here in verse 29. We are accountable congregationally for each other. I love verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What does that mean? He's meaning the, the prophets should not be frenzied out of control. That we have the ability to control ourselves and our spiritual gifts. That they should be orderly and controlled, not out of order and frenzied. So do you see what he's doing? He is not saying today of this text, no matter what you believe, he's not saying, because this is being abused, cast it out. He's, not, he's just not saying that in his text. He's saying, these are the priority. Don't violate it. If because things are abused, we cast them out, sooner or later, everything would be cast out because every, almost anything we ever see can be abused. There should be order. We should reflect. Look at the last part. When we gather, we should reflect submission, not rebellion. It's just the confusing part for many people who say they're going, hold on a second, look at verse 34. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission. You're sitting there going, all right, Paul, hold on a second. Now, didn't you say in chapter 11 that they could speak? And now you said they can't speak. What in the world's up with that? We can look in Acts and Luke and see that nowhere in the New Testament does it refer to total silence here. That verb could mean to be silent, to become silent, or simply to hold your peace. You see, you've got to remember, this is a whole letter. One letter. He's telling those women that he's already talked to earlier in the letter is that you should never say anything in a corporate setting, be it worship like we're at now or small group, that would bring shame to your husband, that would step outside of his authority. You should exercise in corporate worship submission to your God-given head. Brothers, this is a challenge to us because she should be able to come home after this sermon and ask you a question and you answer it. This is about submission. It's not about telling women that they can't ever open their mouth. It's not what he's saying. He's saying you should never do anything to bring shame to the head that God has given you. You should be quiet if you need to ask a question. You should be able to ask your head. 
Not to think that everybody else is off the hook. Look at verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You see the difference? He's, Paul's sitting there going, these guys proclaiming truth and helping us understand the truth in light of Scripture, but when I speak as the apostle, I speak as a direct command of the Lord. goes on to say, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. We gather together and worship Him orderly. Our worship reflects submission to our God-given head. And we have this morning in 1 Corinthians the commands of God given to us through the Apostle Paul. Written down for us to submit to and to obey. So what today? See my zero has went to the negative. You don't, y'all don't see it, praise the goodness. See, you know, you, y'all, y'all had to look at a clock, it would drive you crazy. Y'all be closing. You, people used to do that. We get close to the end, you know the preacher knew to shut up because everybody, all the ladies would start zipping up their pocket. You know, they have those Bibles with a zipper on it. Zip, you know, you know, oh, better shut up. Everybody done zipped up their Bibles. Praise the Lord you don't do that. So what? What drives and motivates and informs my desire for spiritual gifts today? Do you have one? That's where I wanted to start on Psalm 63. In other words, the starting point this morning is not what you can do for God. The starting point is, do you desire God more than anything in this world? Do you desire to know Him? Do you see your desperate need for Him? And when you do, what will bubble up inside of you is a love for God's people. That generosity, that holistic generosity that does not look like simply a check you write, but looks like a life you live. When we gather in our large groups, large gatherings here or in our growth groups, Am I being motivated by love for others' growth? Why do you go to growth group? Why do you not? I'm not bringing you shame. I'm just asking a question. Because, you see, Ephesians 2 is true and so many texts we could go to and this is only one. The Bible doesn't motivate people through shame. You shouldn't receive motivation through it either. The Bible reminds us who we are, Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. And so I I don't know where you are, and maybe there's people listening online as well. You don't attend a local church and are sitting there going, you know, I just don't see the big deal. You know, I can watch it on TV. The saddest conversation I've had over the last five years 
was a family that was leaving and always try to go to lunch and breakfast and ask why. And he said, well, right now in our season of life, we simply want to come to church, hear a good message, and get on with our lives. I love this guy. I love his children. So they're going, do you know where that leads? In your own life. But do you know where it leads in the body of Christ? You see, I got this picture in my mind of the military. Now hang with me, I'm done. You see, the military is made up of all kinds of people. Some are sea troops, they're the Navy. Some are land troops, the Army. Some are air troops, they're the Air Force. And some are medics, and some are cooks, and... Some just make sure when we get to the army, it gets to where they are, that there's actually bullets and trucks and tanks and food and their logistics. They're commanders and captains and generals, and they all have one purpose. Victory. Doing their duties that they have been given in the battle that is to be fought. Yet you talk to that warrior on the front line. And you say, tell me why you're fighting. Yes, he'll say love of country. But he's also going to say, I love that guy. And I love that guy. I love the guy that I'm fighting next to. What happens when they are advancing against the enemy? And the enemy is trying to break through the lines. And the medic is back at camp. Because he does not agree with the method of the commanders. And so he's sitting back in camp arguing that he don't even believe whether this is a valid strategy or not. And so the medic is not out there. And all of a sudden, the guy's buddy goes down and he calls, Medic! Medic! The medic's not in their place because he's in the camp arguing about something. And the frontline warrior has to make a decision. Do I leave my buddy on the ground? Or do I stop and help him? Because if I stop and help him, I leave my unit behind. You see, either choice has a consequence. Do you get the picture today? No matter what God has given you to do, He didn't get, may not call you to be the commander. He may call you to be the cook. He may call you to be the medic. To come alongside of that guy who is down on the ground. And to bind up his wound. So it is in the body of Christ. And I mean this with everything in my being. We're not supposed to sit around smoking our spiritual cigars, discussing ologies and isms when the battle is raging and people are going to hell. We are supposed to reflect God by loving His people and seeking to build them up even if it costs us our very lives because it costs Jesus His. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. God has given you something. Love God's people. Find somebody that's about to fall over and help them stand. And you will be building up the body of Christ. Psalm 1611, You have made known to me the path of life. 
And in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, there's pleasures forevermore. The more we seek to experience and enjoy our Lord, the more we will love his people. Let's pray. Lord, we have come to you as your people, Lord, as we are reminded from last week, an imperfect people. Lord, you know what you've had to do in this man's life this week. Lord, forgive me for functioning in my flesh and not pleading with you for the power of the Spirit in my life. Oh God, bring your truth to bear into the hearts and lives of your people that we may enjoy your presence. That we may bask in your glory. That we may long for you more than any other relationship, any other thing in our life. Give that to us, God. What I pray today in the lives of those that are seated that you would give us the gift of mercy. Oh God, a room full of people like this that could feel the pain of other people and be compelled to bring the gospel to bear in their situation. Oh God, give it to us. Lord, may you lead us to fall in love with you afresh and anew today. Oh God, we need you. Thank you for the promises that you gave your people. That you would not leave us an orphan, but you would come to us. And so you have. But we have been indwelled with the Spirit of God. And so, God, let us sing and rejoice the truth that we are never alone. For we have you, and we have your people. We have much to give thanks for. So, God, may we stand and give thanks today and do it in the name of your Son and all God's people said. Amen. Let's stand together.